Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another blazing hot summer edition of the School of Travel's podcast. I hope you're all staying cool out there with so many stories I'm hearing around the world of things heating up, including my home country of Portugal that just got through a crazy heat wave. So listeners, I encourage you to grab an ice cold drink today and get ready for my conversation with Naman Marotra, a born traveler who is going to share his experience growing up in seven different countries and attending 11 schools across Asia, Africa, and Europe before eventually moving to the U.S. Naman and I discuss his personal experiences as a child of expat parents moving around so much, what it was like changing schools so often, and also we're going to talk about his current position at Safety Wing, which is helping develop new products and strategies for travel insurance around the world as part of the team. Naman has had quite a unique upbringing with so much travel at an early age, but I personally believe his experience may be one that becomes more common as more jobs become location independent. So knowing how to navigate so much change, whether it's for yourself or your family, is valuable advice before you get out there on the road. So without further ado, here's Naman. Welcome to episode 76 of the School of Travels podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to have Naaman Marotra here with me. Naaman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Becky. Super excited to be here. Thank you. And I'm super excited to chat with you about your really interesting background growing up in many places around the world. So can you introduce yourself for us? Sure. Um, so as uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm Naaman and my background, uh, I was born in India. Um, and after about a year old, my parents kind of left uh, due to their jobs um, and started moving around to different countries. So I, I grew up um, to what they would say expats, but I kind of call them uh, OG nomads. Um, and I, I grew up moving around every two to three years um, in different countries, starting with uh, our first country outside of India was Nigeria. Um, and then we moved to Egypt, um, parts of Europe, um, kind of other countries in Asia until I ended up um, in the U.S. Uh, for my undergrad uh, education. And then I've mostly been based here since then, uh, but have been kind of traveling around a lot, uh, being a nomad myself over the last year. Um, and in terms of uh, work, I, I work for this company called Safety Wing that actually uh, fits in quite well with my personal life. Uh, we do health insurance and other benefits for um, remote workers globally and uh, digital nomads. Uh, and our goal is to essentially create a global social safety net um, so that people can kind of live and, and work anywhere in the world. Wow. I think of all the guests I've had, Naman, you have had the most travel as a young at a young age. So I want to dig into that. What is the first memories that you have as a child? What country do you remember being in first? That's a really good question. I, I would say it's uh, Nigeria. I, I maybe some of those 
memories are related to kind of the photos that I've seen from uh, from me as a kid. Um, I used to kind of, uh, yeah, I was one year old when I left India. And uh, we were at first in one of the biggest cities in Nigeria called Lagos um, and uh, eventually moved to a smaller town called Port Harcourt. And uh, I just remember the people there being super, super friendly. And uh, we had a really kind of strong community of friends there that we're still in touch with today, uh, about 25 years later. Um, and uh, our, our, they were mostly kind of my parents' friends at the time. Um, so a lot of my kind of formative memories were, were formed in Nigeria. Oh, wow. And do you mind if I ask what your parents were doing for work that was causing them to move to so many places? Yeah, so it's actually uh, been mainly due to my father's job. Um, and uh, my father has switched uh, switched kind of work uh, over the period. Uh, he initially moved out. He used to work at a consumer goods company um, that moved him to Nigeria. That was the first reason why he left India. Um, and then eventually moved into the oil industry, uh, doing procurement in the oil industry. And as you might be aware, uh, people in the oil industry, depending on the projects, typically move around every two to three years. Um, for the last decade or so, he's left the oil industry, but I think they still kind of have this travel bug where every two to three years, if my parents haven't, uh, they have been in one place, they'll kind of get bored and start exploring opportunities in another uh, place. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to get this picture of, of, you know, what your dad, it sounds like, was doing while you were traveling. And, you know, it sounds like your mom also really loves travel. Um, so what was it like to move that often as a child? Yeah, you know, in the, I guess, surface of it, it sounds uh, very exciting. Uh, but I remember as a kid complaining a lot about it. Um, and uh, I think what would happen is essentially I'd make a new best friend uh, and then within a year, uh, I would have to leave and, and kind of start from scratch all over again. Uh, just to give you an idea of like how much we moved. Um, I think before I spent, before I went to the, uh, to my university, I went to 11 schools, um, across the world. And so it was roughly changing schools every one and a half years. If you count kind of the kindergarten and, and, uh, uh or I guess pre first grade schools. Uh, so it was, um, it was quite a lot. And, uh, I think initially I didn't kind of recognize how much I was learning just by being in different environments. Looking back, it was much easier to appreciate and I wouldn't have had it any other way. And I'm like very grateful for my parents to give me that kind of experience. Um, and I found that a lot of the friends that I made over time uh, also kind of were in similar boats. So you have kind of all these, uh, there's a term called third culture kid, uh, which are typically people who are born uh, in one place and grow up in a completely different place and move uh, every few few years. Um, and uh, I was kind of surrounded by a lot of those people in international schools wherever I, I uh, went as a kid. Uh, so that was a really interesting and almost a very tight knit community in a, in a strange way, given we were moving around so much. Yeah, that was another question I had was, were you put at any point into local schools or was it always international schools? It was almost always international schools. Um, there was a point where my parents really cared about the stability of my education. And uh, in maybe around 2007, um, Nigeria was starting to get a bit of, a bit dangerous and unstable to stay in because there's uh, because of um, kind of 
a lot of like political issues there. There were, ha- there were a lot of kidnappings and, and stuff that were happening, even in our communities and, and things started to get a bit scary, um, even kind of in the places we were living. And so my parents were kind of looking at another move. And that's when I was entering seventh grade and they were kind of starting to think about my future. And so we explored, uh, boarding schools. And, uh, that's when I kind of moved to a boarding school in back in India, um, at when I was 11 years old. Um, that was a local kind of Indian school, but it offered international education. Um, that was probably the only time I would say that I was in a local school. Other than that, it was mostly international schools. Okay. And was that your first time going back to India at that point when you went into boarding school? Um, it was actually my second time. So I, when I was four years old, we moved back again for a little bit, but I don't have too many memories from then because I was, I was so young. Wow. What was it like to go back at that, at that point into boarding school? Cause I was thinking, I wondered if you had family in India that your parents were trying to put you closer to, to, you know, be able to get to know them better at that point, or were you just in the boarding school? Yeah, we did have family and actually my mom and my sister moved back for, for a short period to be closer to me. Uh, but the boarding school was, uh, I mean, as you'd imagine, like I would still only see them twice a year, um, like in between semesters. And the main reason for going to the boarding school wasn't kind of to be closer to family it was to provide me uh, what we thought was the best possible education and at least have that be stable while kind of they figured out their moves. Um, and so I, I kind of really respect and appreciate that they made a decision that was so difficult for them or like sending their kid uh, thousands of miles away. Um, and for me personally, I, I guess I didn't understand what was going on, right? And why they were making that decision fully. So it was quite a difficult decision because I'm, I'm very, very close to my family. Um, and so leaving when I was like 10 years old and, and, uh, being by myself there, um, I had a pretty hard time, not going to lie, dealing with that. Um, but over time, um, I kind of recognized some of the good things that I, I took away from that. Um, I, I stayed in that boarding school. Most people are kind of s- supposed to stay for about six years, but I stayed three years uh, and then moved back with my family because uh, we we kind of moved to uh, uh, we we moved to Egypt at that time, and there was a really good uh, international school there. Um, so I was able to kind of move back uh, with them. Oh wow! And what was it like to be on your own? It sounds like you did spend quite a bit of time on your own in these different schools. I mean, as you said, it wasn't that easy with the boarding school, but how did you, how did you find the strength to kind of go forward alone with the family so far away? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think uh, I grew up with uh, my, I I would say a lot of my family values uh, probably played into it. Um, My, my mom was, uh, I, I think, a big part in how we grew up to um, kind of just be very grounded uh, in ourselves and, and recognizing um, that if, even if we're not kind of happy in the present, if we're doing something for the long term, it's, it's kind of worth doing. Um, and so even as a kid, I've, I recognized that and I, I knew that my parents were doing this for kind of my own benefit. So just keeping that long-term view in mind helped with dealing with that. Um, and then also I, I think, I was becoming a lot more independent, like the boarding school going through that kind of um, going through that whole process of um, um, 
just being molded at such a young age um, and being able to kind of do everything yourself uh, was really, really, uh, uh, I guess, pivotal in my life long term. And uh, I think my my father till this day says that, like, I became super um, uh, resilient during uh, that period. And they kind of saw me transform as a kid as well. Um, so that's something I'm very grateful for. Um, and then I would say the third uh, and probably one of the most important things is that Anywhere you are, there's some sort of a support network. Um, and I still have some, some of my oldest friends, uh, that I'm still in touch with, um, like on a day to day basis are from, uh, the boarding school. So kind of no matter where I was, I was able to kind of form very good relationships and a support network without whom I, I kind of wouldn't be happy and, and here. Um, and so. Yeah. And it was interesting kind of moving around so quickly. Uh, the whole point on the best friend that I was mentioning earlier, uh, I got very used to becoming close to people in a very short timeline. Um, so I would make friends very quickly. And I saw the same thing happen with my younger sister. I feel like you're describing like key tools that help us be successful as digital nomads. Would you say that these experiences helped you later on when you decided to become a nomad? Yeah, yeah, actually, uh, it was, uh, it felt very natural. It just felt like I was going back to my uh, old life. Uh, I remember the first, um, the, yeah, the first time I kind of made that decision to become a nomad, uh, it just felt very natural. I didn't feel like I was doing something super different. Yeah, I, I think that you said making friends quickly. I, I do the same. And I think if I wasn't able to do that, I would definitely feel more alone when I'm going to places I've never been before and just staying in Airbnbs. Yeah, completely. Uh, because, yeah, you, I mean, you know this, right? You put yourself in a completely different situation and a new city. Um, and if you're not comfortable doing that, it, it does get quite lonely. Yeah, I've also interviewed a lot of digital nomads, and I would love to ask each one of them, you know, if they had similar independent experiences at, at a young age, because I was 22 when I left the US and moved to Japan by myself. And I think now, if I hadn't gone when I was so young, it may have seemed so much scarier, you know, as a person that just got a remote job during the pandemic or something, being given all this independence and freedom. Do you think just starting so young was was one of the things that later led you to feel okay about being a nomad? Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a really good point, actually, uh, where when you're young, uh, you feel like you can just kind of do more and your your personality is more malleable a little bit. Um, I will say that even when you're older, um, I, I think you can do it. You're just probably more fearful to take that kind of first step. Um, I, I don't think there's any material. It, it comes down to the person at the end of the day. But that first step becomes harder because maybe you have more uh, time in one place or you have kind of more things that you're leaving to become a nomad. Um, that's why I think being younger and doing it, there's just kind of fewer things that you might have to worry about when you're doing it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and having had that experience in the past, I recommend it to at some point all my friends who are like even thinking about it just to try it for a few months and see if it is for for them. It's not for everybody, but um, I think just even if you're having that thought, I think having tried it uh, is a uh, is a really fun fun kind of thing to have done at one point. 
Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree. Now, one question that comes to mind when I'm thinking of you in all of these places and all of these schools, what kind of languages did you pick up through these experiences? Were you able to like learn like local languages staying enough time there? Or did you basically keep this, the language that you were using with your family and English as well? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I was better at learning languages. Uh, I am not very good at picking up new languages. And uh, right now I speak uh, mainly Hindi and English. Both both were pretty much my first languages. And uh, moving around, I did make an attempt to learn new languages. So in Egypt, I learned a little bit of uh, Arabic. In Switzerland, learned a little bit of uh, French and German. And I think what ended up happening was... Uh, Every time I'd move, I'd kind of try to pick up a new language and I didn't give it enough time to um, essentially assimilate in the environment and, and get better at the language. And so I, over time, I just forgot uh, most of these languages that I semi-knew at some point. Yeah, I was curious about that. I know I've, I've heard that if you're put in local schools and, of course, staying a couple of years, three years would really help. But I'm not so familiar because I've never been to an international school. In international schools, is it mostly English is, is the language used or do they also teach the language where you're living, the local language? No, it's, it depends on the international school you're going to in a lot of these countries, um, especially in uh, in uh, many African countries. You typically have British, American and in some places, French schools, well, what used to be French colonies, uh, even even in Southeast Asia, I would say. Um, so in a French school, obviously, I think um, all the kind of, it would be a French medium school. Uh, and then British and American schools will typically be English and you'll have kind of the different systems. IB is one of the biggest ones, uh, International Baccalaureate. And then uh, the American system is kind of similar to what um, private American schools do here. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it's mostly, I only went to English speaking schools. Okay. That's a, that's a really good question. Did, did you actually, uh, did you learn Japanese when you were in Japan first? Yeah, I, so I just studied two of the local scripts that they use, katakana and hiragana on my own before going there, but I had never taken a Japanese class before I moved there. So it was all once, once I got there. And uh, I think, I mean, I would always say if you can take the language in school um, and use it, like go to, let's say a weekend language school where you are using it um, with people, that would be the best. But often that's not the case when people decide to move somewhere. So yeah, had to do it on the ground once I was there, but I spent so much time there that, you know, I had a lot more opportunity. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's actually amazing how many, uh, it kind of opens up a whole new world in the, the country or, or city you're in, I would say, uh, if you speak the local language and you can kind of, um, you can be a closer part of the local culture, I think, instead of having that expat experience. For sure. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole episode is <laughs> the expat experience versus the local experience. But yeah, bridging, being able to bridge between cultures is, is so uh, enriching. And I would recommend if anyone's going to a country and they want to stay for a while that definitely learn the language as fast as you can. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Uh, I, it's interesting, actually, the whole expat experience. Um, I, I we were we used to be in Egypt um, 
And uh, my kind of high school years when we were in Egypt, I had no idea that there were kind of problems happening politically until the Egyptian revolution happened. And we were, my family was actually there. That's when I kind of started to like have this whole revelation as a, uh, as a kind of relatively young, I think 15 year old uh, person where uh, locals were having a completely different experience. I thought like Cairo, Egypt was like a perfect place and everything was going really well and the country was progressing in the right direction. But then we were kind of in this, glass box where we weren't seeing what was happening outside of the expat experience and maybe my parents kind of had a better understanding of the world but it was a really big uh, revelation to me as a kid oh yeah i i saw and felt a lot of things in japan as well while i was there um we were always as expats treated differently we were allowed to get away let's say with more behavior than the japanese culture would allow its own people and i i started noticing that the longer I was there. And then we had this terrible earthquake in 2011 um, in the Northeast of the country, uh, which I'm sure you've heard about and and remember. And, uh, you know, then suddenly all the expats had an option to leave, you know, they could go back to families in other countries, but to see a, a big crisis in the, in the country, on a national scale and, and feel suddenly, Oh, I'm, I, I am a part, I can leave it. It really puts things into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, you mentioned your sister. Do you, do, do you only have one sibling or do you have any others? No, just one younger sister. Okay. So I, I'm wondering, were you guys like very close while growing up through all of these moves and all of these schools? Yeah, we're, we're actually really close uh, even to date. Like I speak to her a few times every day. Uh, and uh, we, uh, I think we became even closer when I left for the boarding school, because um, she was always used to having a sibling around at home. And it was a big change for her, both when I went to boarding school and when I left for university, we have a three-year age gap. Um, and uh, we, I, I think, you know how, you know that saying like distance kind of brings you closer. So because that happened to us at such a young age, I think she was seven, I was, uh, or she was uh, eight, I was 11. Uh, we started to value each other's relationships a lot more as, as kids. And so when, when I came back for high school, we were just super close. And, and I think it's kind of been the same way ever since. Yeah. I'm just imagining she was your touchstone. You know, you have, you were the only two that were having these same experiences throughout everything outside of your parents. So I'm, I would, I feel that if, if, children were going through a similar experience as yours, I would hope that they had a sibling to to share it with because I imagine it's so much change as only one person going through everything uh, as an expat around the world. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Now, I know you have not had any other experience than the one you had, but would you recommend um, that parents, if they're thinking about going, you know, on their first journey outside, do you think it's, it's, uh, would you recommend a child moving around several times to different countries and experiencing that if they, if they have the option? Yes. I, I mean, as you said, I might be biased in some ways, but, uh, I think it teaches you a lot of important life skills and internalizes, uh, just you being much more accepting. And I think this can probably be achieved to some extent by, um, traveling to um if you have the means to do it obviously um where um traveling a lot you get exposed to other cultures you get exposed to how people do things and you just 
become much more open as a person, even as an adult, right? But if you're doing that as a kid, um, I feel like that gives the the child to be um, uh, the, the opportunity to be a lot more versatile in the things that they accept and the things that they want to do and kind of just knowing what's out there in the world. Um, so I would highly recommend it. And it was like a huge part of what shaped my uh, personality. Um, and it's, it's, it's a question I've kind of asked myself is like, if I have kids one day, um, what would I want to give them that kind of an experience? And I think the, um, I guess the answer I've come to is like, it would be some love, maybe not to that extent where I, I don't even know if I would move around that much, um, where I, I think in the future, and we might talk about this in a minute, but uh, I'm, I see myself as having a base and traveling for multiple months out of the year. Um, so I would still kind of want to take them along in, in that journey. Um, and uh, I think that is very important. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you about some of your solo travels. Um, when did you first take a solo trip, not as something that was with your family uh, and let's say outside of the, you know, uh, to an international country, let's say. Yeah, uh, my first solo trip was right after it was when I was 21, right after my university um, in um, Thailand and Cambodia. OK, so very far from where you were living at the time. And did you have any memorable experiences on that first trip? Yeah, a lot of memorable experiences. I remember that was the first time I did my solo trip and I was going to come back to work in New York uh, shortly after. And uh, that trip was the first time I kind of got that whole nomad bug that one day it would be cool to. uh, uh, It was the first time I met people who were traveling for like seven, eight months at a time. Because before that, my definition of traveling was either kind of moving to a new place and having that. Uh, kind of having your job and everything be based out of there. I hadn't heard too much about remote work back then. Um, and uh, I met these people who were traveling for like seven, eight months at a time. And I was like, that would be really cool to try one day. Uh, but then my in my mind, there was kind of this concept that I would have to take time off. Uh, so when I'm kind of ready to take, uh, like I've worked for a bit and, and saved up, uh, I will take time off and do that and and kind of, pandemic and everything that happened the last three years has, has changed that obviously. Uh, but that, that was a really, I, I think that was really kind of the beginning of it, uh, of the idea of that for me. Um, and then I also remember it, uh, it shaped a little bit on how I thought about solar travel. Uh, so the first evening when I landed in, in Thailand and I went to the hostel, I, I kind of had this mindset or, or concept where, um, I have to meet people to enjoy this um, this first vacation I'm on, right? I'm I'm going solo. It's something new, um, and I have to meet people. And so, like, I just went up to the hostel uh, um, kind of reception and said, "What do you recommend?" And they recommended me going to this uh, uh, party that another hostel was throwing. And I remember I walked in there, and um, it just felt like a, a American frat party, which is uh, not. Uh, particularly my scene uh, and I left in 15 minutes thinking that this is this whole trip is going to be a disaster I don't know how I'm going to make friends and uh, how I'll meet people uh, but then I kind of just woke up and started to like look at things that I was enjoying like activities and and actually just doing the things that I would enjoy anyways and then through those activities I started making meeting people and making some really strong connections uh, over time and uh, 
then that kind of changed my mindset. I was like, I shouldn't kind of just go to a place for the sake of meeting people, but I'll meet them by doing the things that I love. Uh, you have found one of my cheat codes for traveling independently. Um, there's been like running groups where I've met some great friends and I would say taking food tours. I love, I, I consider myself a foodie. And so I will always look for like the Airbnb experience now that, now that they have started uh, where they're having a food tour. And because the Airbnb experiences are small groups, I've, I found that to be a great way to meet people and, and connect on a deeper level. That, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I actually haven't tried Airbnb experiences, but I've been meaning to uh, a lot of those food tours and stuff. I, I really love them too. Yeah. And I know for a, several, a couple of years, they were not available. So I know they're coming back with a vengeance now. And so, yeah, I would recommend trying them. Awesome. I will. All right. Well, where did you go after Thailand and Cambodia? Any other memorable trips before becoming a nomad? Because I know you became a nomad about a year ago, right? After leaving New yeah. York, yeah, correct. Um, so even um, after Thailand, Cambodia, I, I would make it a, t- a point to travel to new countries every year. Uh, but I had a job that required you to be in office, but also traveling. I, I was working in in consulting at the time uh, for for since kind of twenty eighteen to twenty twenty, um, and uh, even as part of that job, I actually was traveling quite a lot. It was it was pretty crazy. I was looking at uh, the number of nights I spent in a hotel because we would travel to a client Monday through Thursdays. Um, so I think in like one and a half years, I spent close to 180 nights or something in a hotel, uh, which, which was uh, pretty, uh, pretty crazy as well uh, in terms of traveling, but it wasn't the kind of traveling that you do as a, as a nomad or even, um, even kind of for fun. Um, I was traveling purely for, for work there. Uh, but in, some of those in between some of those, I did take some vacations. One of them that I really remember, uh, was, uh, my first time in South America. It was in Peru. Um, and, uh, that was, uh, we did this like five day salt, uh, uh, hike in, uh, kind of near Machu Picchu. It wasn't the Inca trail, but it was, uh, something called the Salcante trail, which goes through a bit more, uh, kind of natural, uh, landscapes. Um, and that was just being out in nature. Uh, I like very outdoorsy person. And one of my favorite hikes ever, uh, made a lot of good friends there that I'm still in touch with. Um, and, uh, I coming back, I remember, uh, it, it started to kind of inform me in my work life as well, where I realized that I wasn't necessarily in the right place for what I wanted to do. And I started to think about like what, did I want to do next? And that journey eventually led me to uh, doing product and uh, and being at Safety Bank, my current company. Don't you love how travel is is sometimes what what does lead you to make professional changes as well? Yeah, it's interesting. It's amazing how much uh, just disconnecting uh, and having a fresh perspective can can do for you. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm glad you brought up Safety Wing because I, I have a question for you about healthcare in multiple different countries, which you alone may be able to inform me on because you were in so many countries. And I don't know how often you had to get healthcare while you were growing up. But do you have any experiences um, from your childhood and beyond into university of getting healthcare in different countries and some of the comparisons that you remember? Yeah, that's um, that's a good question. I think 
it's very different. Uh, it, it's, I mean, as you'd imagine, it's very different getting healthcare. I understand the U.S. healthcare because that's when I've that's where I've spent a lot of my uh, kind of adult life. Uh, but I also understand it's one of the most messy healthcare systems in in the world, and uh, a lot of, for example, um, South Asia and Southeast Asia, and like most of the places I'd say we grew up in, uh, we would have access to private um, kind of practices and some really good um, local uh, healthcare providers that were obviously much cheaper compared to Western standards, but unfortunately kind of quite expensive compared to local standards. Um, and we would typically essentially get that kind of um, service and it, it would be a really kind of high level of service. And as you probably would have known traveling to like Asia and uh, parts of Africa as well, um, it, it was a, it was a adjustment for me to see how expensive healthcare is in the U S uh, I was actually recently trying to, I, I recently got my eye surgery, uh, LASIK eye surgery. And um, I ended up doing that in India. Uh, but when I was exploring options in the U S um, I remember them quoting me like $4,000. And at first I thought it was like for two eyes, it's, it's not, not for, I assumed it was for both eyes, but then they're like, that's per eye. Uh, and it was for the, older version of the technology that's out too, which is uh, just insane to me. And in India, I was able to get um, kind of the newest treatment for um, $1,500, less than $1,500, which is still a bit of money, but compared the price comparison is absolutely insane. Um, so um, I, I think that was like one of the first things that stood out to me. Um, and it's actually one of the challenges in global health insurances, right, uh, is uh, the different ways in which healthcare systems work. Uh, because it's such a complex kind of machine, right? Um, providers um, kind of connected to insurance companies and and um, having member data and like the way you approach just going to the hospital or going to a provider is different in different countries. So building a global healthcare solution uh, becomes kind of it, the complexity adds up. And, and that's one of the complexities we would love to solve in the long run. Yeah, I had a similar experience with LASIK eye surgery. For me, it's been nine years ago now, but I did it in Japan. Uh, and I remember I made sure to go to a clinic where a lot of the celebrities in Japan were going. And they gave me like a $1,000 discount because my friend knew someone who worked there. I mean, and you're like, I don't think that would be available as a discount in the US, but it was about $2,500 for the whole surgery and they did offer different um, levels of, of care. And also I think 11 years of follow-up care, if you had any issues, you could come back and get a free correction. And the only thing I, I remember is that I was worried there might be an earthquake during the surgery because they're so, <laughs> they're so prone to earthquakes in Tokyo. And the, the doctor just laughed at me when I asked, he's like, ah, that's not going to happen. And it didn't thankfully, but I mean, you, you deal with the different situations that you are in, in different countries, but what you brought up is, is so important that there is very professional high level care around the world. And I think Americans in particular think that that doesn't exist necessarily outside of the U S yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. You can go to like a top notch. I mean, as you said, there's like a lot of celebrities would go to that one. The the kind of place I went to in India, it was uh, the same thing. And um, the kind of care they provide 
Uh, and you hear stories about places like Turkey, uh, where medical tourism is a big thing and um, for different types of procedures, whether it's like LASIK or um, I guess hair grafting and stuff like that, they, um, they will organize full trips, pick you up from the airport, like organize your whole hotel. And it's like a full package tour uh, that they would take care of. And with, even with like follow-ups and stuff like that. So the kind of care you receive is, uh, is pretty amazing in some of these places. Yeah. At the same time, um, I, for example, went, uh, got food poisoning in Colombia once and I went to my hostel's reception to ask, like, do you know a place nearby that speaks English that can treat me? And I ended up going to a place that didn't speak any English and still was feeling so bad that I went in and they ended up saying, you can't leave this clinic with your passport. We're not giving you your passport back until we give you a shot in the butt. <laughs> To help, and I just eventually I was quite angry because I thought this doesn't happen in the U.S. They would never give you a shot in your butt for food poisoning, <laughs> but I just let them do it, and then everything was you know I didn't die or anything. It was all fine in the end, but I just thought okay. I'll get out, get my passport. So there's there's a wide range of things that can happen, but I know that Safety Wing is is trying to from because we've talked about this before. Actually, um, you had said that you're trying to create solutions where you'll be able to go into many different clinics around the world and possibly even uh, find the pharmacies as well through Safety Wing. Yeah, I, I think that might be the pharmacy part might be a little further out, but we do have, uh, I mean, we're trying to, the way things work in the U.S. Um, and, and a lot of countries is you have kind of in-network and out-of-network providers. Um, with global insurances, that concept doesn't exist. So with Safety Wing, um, with our health insurance, you could technically go to any provider, any licensed public or private practice. Um, or hospital and um, and then you would submit a claim for it um, and that gives you obviously a lot of freedom to stick with your um, existing or, or kind of any provider that's close to you or convenient uh, as you have convenient access to um, and it solves a big problem uh, for us where we don't have to go in and create a network with each of these places uh, but the downside of that is that you have to pay in a lot of those cases the claim uh, so you have to pay the, the amount and then submit a claim after that. So that's a problem we're trying to solve and seeing we, we do offer direct billing as well. Uh, but it, it's the process right now is something that you have to set up um, in advance. And it's not I wouldn't say it works as ideally as we'd like to. Um, so there are kind of some solutions we're working on there. Um, and we're also not just looking at health insurance, right? We're looking at um uh, like other products in the future as well. Uh, we're looking at remote doctor, which uh, you'd be able to um, access uh, kind of doctors um, or have virtual visits with doctors, um, depending on kind of your needs. And I, I think that will eventually, if you need a prescription for something, you'd be able to get that as well. So that's, uh, th there's a bunch of other products in the healthcare space, uh, but mostly in uh, kind of our scope of problems is anything that will uh, enable you to uh, anything that would fall in like a global social safety net. So uh, whether it's financial security products or, or healthcare products. Okay. And you're also working with um, 
like, for example, people that are setting up companies, you're helping the bosses to like to offer payment or insurance plans for their employees as well. Is that right? You have a one of those products. Correct. Yeah. So our health insurance product is mostly for teams right now. Um, there's almost two layers of it. We actually, the, the team that I uh, lead works on, um, we're actually building uh, an API, which uh, will help uh, many platforms. So you have uh, platforms such as like Oyster and companies that help other companies hire abroad uh, or freelance networks. Um, so like Fiverr and Upwork. So we're building products for them to integrate our um, offering um, within their platform. So through their platforms, then they can offer um, safety wings, um, health insurance, or in the future, maybe like retirement products to their um, um, uh, to their kind of communities. Um, so that's like one product. Um, and then there is, uh, we also offer obviously directly to teams, uh, which is uh, small businesses, startups. We're kind of now talking to the larger businesses and companies as well, where we're providing health insurance to all of their teams. That's fantastic. And I know as, as remote work is going to continue to explode around the world, we're going to need more and more varieties of these products. And I'm glad there's some there's a company like Safety Wing that sounds like you're at the forefront of all of this. Yeah, we, we hope so. I mean, it's been... Uh... It's interesting, our timeline of being launched, this was before I joined the company, was uh, we've obviously been working on the product for a few years, but uh, we launched this just around, uh, I think it was February 2020. um, And that's when COVID hit and like everyone went into remote work. And uh, there's this uh, uh, talk from our founder, uh, Sandra, on... uh, and in his talk, he mentioned something like there will be a future. And I know it's kind of hard to believe uh, there'll be, a, but there'll be a future where um, many companies will be working remotely. Uh, and in three months and everyone was kind of at, after the talk, like no one kind of believed that truly. And three months later, hundred percent of the workforce in the U S was, was remote um, for, for obviously like unfortunate reasons, but then people realized that that was a way that people could work. And now, um, some companies are going hybrid, some companies are going back, but then the remote work kind of trend will continue to happen and, and increase over time is, is what we're seeing. Uh, so we're excited to be developing products uh, that solve problems in this space. That's amazing. Yeah, what timing. Um, I have an unusual question for you, and I don't know how many con- companies are considering this, but I feel like, especially after the pandemic and just given the state of the world right now, mental health is even more important. And I think it's finally becoming more accepted that it is something you need to take care of, uh, uh, you know, in an even bigger scale. Do, does Safety Wing, has that, have they ever considered offering a package to help with mental health? Yeah, we have. It's something where we've looked in internally um, as well. And uh, we um, we have an incubation team that basically looks at new ideas that we want to build next. Um, and mental health is also something that um, a lot of health insurances offer as part of employer uh, employee assistance programs. Um, so that is also something we're looking into kind of adding to our health insurance over time. Um, so it, yeah, the, the answer, the short answer is that we are kind of looking into it and we recognize that it's, uh, really important. I've 
excuse me, I personally also recognize that it is uh, very important. And, and I think the the fact that it's becoming more acceptable to talk about it as well, depending on kind of the culture you're in. But generally, the the global trend is that it, it is becoming more acceptable to talk about it. And that's uh, fantastic that that's happening. I, I am glad to hear that. And I, I don't know if um, there, as a digital nomad, I have to say, I've actually never had a mental health consultation uh, in, a, in a foreign country. Is this something that has also been talked about, like offering that? I know the challenge is actually finding places that you know are going to speak your language and, you know, there's no history typically when you go in. So it, it, this is something that would take uh, that would happen over time. So maybe it needs to be more of a uh, remote online component, but yeah. Yeah. That, that is an interesting problem. And uh, I, yeah, I think having, I guess I haven't experienced that as well, like as a digital nomad, uh, but uh, it was uh, yeah. Looking in a different country, like I think, it would be interesting to kind of figure out and we haven't gone into the details of this, but um, would you be open to uh, one, like w- what languages would we potentially support? Uh, and and two, uh, would you be open to talking to a specialist in a different country um, and a different part of the world? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things to consider in the health insurance space for sure. Uh, and thank you for telling us more about the products. Um, do you have any products that are you, you foresee coming online with Safety Wing within the next year that have not been um, that are not available at the moment? Yeah, so the one that I mentioned, a Remote Doctor, we're piloting uh, pretty soon, um, and that one will allow you to do virtual visits with uh, doctors and, and healthcare professionals. And uh, the second one is remote retirement, uh, which will allow you to have a retirement, a global retirement account. Um, and that one should be coming out later this year. It's something we're, we're testing. Uh, so pretty excited about both of those. Oh, can you tell me a little bit more about the global retirement account? Is that that's for health insurance or... No, that's not for health insurance. So if you've uh, in, in certain countries, uh, like in the US, for example, I, I think it's called different in different places. But in the US, you have uh, essentially a, a retirement account, um, which is I think here it's called 401k, uh, where you're able to deposit money into that you kind of take out at a certain age. Um, and, uh, and your company is able to deposit money into it. it's almost like a savings account. Um, but uh, there are certain tax benefits to doing that. And I'm not sure how, I'm not kind of the person leading that project uh, uh, or leading that product right now. So I'm not sure the details of that, but um, I think the ideal end state of that is that those tax benefits that we're getting right now at a local scale, we'll be able to provide somewhat at a global scale as well. Um, so you're, you have you have the ability to set up one retirement account no matter where you move. Uh, retirement savings account because right now what happens if I'm like a U.S. resident um, and I uh, and it's actually quite complicated how this works. The system is not very transparent, and I move to a different country, like even Canada. And at some point, I want to withdraw all the savings that I have held up in the U.S. I pay a pretty big, uh, I think, fine on withdrawing those uh, from the U.S. Unless I keep them until I'm like 50, 60 year old um, and and withdraw them and use them in the U.S. So it's uh, I think. 
there's some very interesting problems that we'd be able to solve there, uh, doing that on a global scale. I am so excited for that. As someone who is from the US and and knows exactly what you're talking about with those penalties, I am definitely going to look into this product. Is it going to be available for US citizens? Because I know there's certain things for with healthcare that that, that we can't uh, access as US citizens. Yeah, I'm I'm not uh, unfortunately sure at this point. Uh, I think our long term goal, obviously, is to make everything available almost everywhere we can. Uh, so in the long run, I'm more confident in saying it, it will be. But uh, unfortunately, right now, I, I don't think I can answer that. All right. Well, thank you. I'm excited. And I will look more into that. Um, so I wanted to go back to something you had uh, mentioned about how you're looking for a base or you're starting to think about going forward. Uh, you were a nomad for, I think it was about a year. Is that right? Yeah, it's been, it's uh, coming up on a year now, uh, next month actually, or yeah, in one and a half months. Okay. And, and what is your plan going forward? Do you want to continue to like travel every month to a new place or what, what are you thinking for the next, let's say one year to three years? Yeah. So I think long-term um, I I've realized and everyone kind of has a different timeline and, and way that they travel in, but uh, I've realized that I would, I still love having a base. Like I like having my own things to come back to and um, uh, even like my own kind of re- remote work set up. And, um, but then I would, I still love the, uh, like parts of this kind of nomad life where you can travel to a new place when you want to and, and, uh, uh, base out of there. Uh, one of the things I learned early on in my, um, in my nomad experience was, uh, uh, I was traveling too quickly. Like I was moving from one place to another every few weeks, um, or sometimes even like every week. Uh, initially and then i i just realized how quickly i got tired uh, of that um and if you've been traveling for a while um I, I think that kind of whole novelty of traveling and just sightseeing goes away right you're kind of there to actually experience a new place uh, and that can only be done if you're uh now there there's a lot of terms that uh, my friends use uh, which is slow matting uh which is kind of spending a few months in one place uh and that's something that appeals to me a little bit more like at least kind of minimum one month to a few months. And um, so th- that's something my, my plan is to try that for about the next year um, and spend um, kind of a few months in different cities. Uh, so parts of it, I'm, I'm already thinking of being in, in Asia for uh, kind of the fall winter months um, and, uh, and traveling around there a little bit because that's one part, even though my, my family kind of lives there, that's one part I haven't like spent an extended period of time traveling in right now. Um, even though kind of my whole solo travel thing started out there uh, back back in 2018. And um, yeah, so I, I'll spend a few months kind of here and there um, traveling to cities, which I think could be my base uh, over the next year. And my thinking is kind of early in 2023, I would, uh, based on the city that, that I think would would be a good base i would i would set that up and uh and operate out of there maybe six to eight months of the year and continue traveling for the rest that's actually what i'm doing as well i'm, I'm based at least six months in one place and then i think one of the great things about being a nomad is you can avoid winter if it's not your thing so i am still planning to go to warm places in the winter as well so i totally understand 
Yeah, I, I think that works. Uh, actually, a lot of people I know probably end up with that arrangement uh, after trying to be nomadic for a little bit. Yeah, it's. I think too, when you're in warmer weather, uh, you're more productive and you just feel better. Normally, I know that's not for everybody, but that has been the case for myself. Yeah, and the amount of sunlight. There's a lot of uh, studies showing correlation to that, and your um, positive, I guess, uh, well-being as well. Yeah, completely. Well, Naman, if people want to find out more about you or Safety Wing, where can they go? Yeah, they can um, find more information about me on on LinkedIn and uh, Safety Wing. They should uh, totally check out our website, safetywing.com. We also have uh, an Instagram handle, which posts uh, really interesting uh, traveling related content. It's called uh, Borderless and uh yeah, and you can yeah, personally, you can find me on, on LinkedIn. That's probably the best place. Okay, and I will put all of those links uh, at theschooloftravels.com. So thank you so much, Naman, for joining me today and sharing your really unique story of traveling to so many places at such a young age. It's been, I think, really fascinating to learn. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me on. Like, it was really nice speaking to you and, and everyone on the podcast. Thank you so much. And I look forward to all of this, these new safety wing products as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted when they come out. All right. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Naman. It's amazing how much he's already experienced at such a young age, and he's still only in his 20s. As someone who only changed schools once before university and to a school district five minutes away from my previous one, I can only imagine how flexible Naman has had to be as his family kept moving from place to place. It was also really interesting to hear that Safety Wing not only provides insurance for travelers, but also for businesses looking to employ a location-independent team. I really hope Safety Wing can also release a financial product, as Naman mentioned, similar to the American 401k, but for freelancers. That would be an amazing upgrade for people currently having to figure out their saving strategies all on their own. For more information on Safety Wing, or if you'd like to contact Naman on LinkedIn, please check out the links for this episode at theschooloftravels.com. Thanks for listening as always, and until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. With your head up standing tall And you'd look back and think it's funny How you spent your time and money In this world Living in this perfect world